Welcome to ED GovCast. It's December, it's Christmas. I'm Lee Barneycott and with me is Gareth Davis and Helen Bates. We hope you enjoyed this month's governance meeting. There was loads of great content there and it's a great celebration of all the all the activity that's been going on in the department this year. Yeah, absolutely. And looking back the last 12 months, we've had so much clinical cases to talk about. Point of care ultrasound, marvellous CT images, adult and paediatric, Helen. Thank you. Yes, we brought some paediatric x-rays to the meeting this week and reminded ourselves that we had that terrible time of group A strep earlier in the year. And it's funny how looking back over the slides for various meetings that we've had during the year, bring back those memories of the things that we've been through this year. Can I just start, guys? Uh, it's a Christmas podcast, so oh, yes. we have to get in there with a Christmas cracker joke. Excellent. So here's the first one for starters. What do you get if you eat Christmas decorations? What do you get if you eat Christmas decorations? Tinselitis. <laughs> that old chestnut. Links nicely with a group A strep. Eh? Thank you. <laughs> love it, Helen. Love it. Okay, so what have we got on the show today then, Gareth? Well, as, as we mentioned, we're going to go through all these wonderful cases from the last 12 months. We're going to start off with a little hypertension guideline. Um, if it. you remember from last month, um, we did cover a case of hypertension, so it's nice to sort of tie that into that. We've got some fantastic uh, cases, including the use of point-of-care ultrasound uh, in the diagnosis of uh, massive pulmonary embolism. A great case of aortic dissection that was picked up by one of our registrars on ultrasound. And we've got uh, that... Uh, the, the case of the massive GI bleed and some great uh, team working there, wasn't there? It was a good save there. And we're going to talk through that hypertension guideline in a bit more detail, aren't we? And I was just going to say there was a couple of paediatric cases as well. Forget um, the kids. Don't forget the kids. Uh, so we're going to talk about management for torticollis, a pneumonia. And also I brought to the meeting uh, a case that I presented a while ago um, of a child who presented us post-surgical fund duplication. Okay. Should we get started then, Gareth? Let's do this. Okay, we, we kicked off this month's meeting with one of our middle grades, Hagar Hassan, talking about hypertension. And, and actually, that links nicely into from our last podcast. We talked about hypertension in the emergency department. So it's nice to see that we are kind of following the whole governance process from, from clinical cases to introducing SOPs and guidelines early. Yeah, I'm really pleased to see this, folks. Um, I find that these hypertensive patients turn up quite a lot and there's a lot of variation in how in how they're managed uh, from both within our team and the specialist teams that we work with. So I know that Hagger's done loads of work on this and she's found some really useful guidelines out there from the British and Irish Hypertensive Society. That's the right one, isn't it? Which she's been able to bring forward uh, and work with some of the other um, specialists in the hospital to, to pull a guideline together relevant to the department. Uh, so it's great to hear about that today. Yeah, and there is some really useful sort of parts of that algorithm. For example, the use of fundoscopy, and I, I, we really struggle with that in the emergency department, don't we, Helen? I think we do. And what's interesting is that this case um, that Haggis saw is not the same case that we presented at the last governance meeting. So that does show you how common it is. And fortunately, Haggis has liaised with our ophthalmology colleagues um, because I think there is a recognition that actually amongst us in the emergency department we don't look in the back of eyes probably as much as we should or as much as we did and actually recognizing the signs of hypertensive crisis in the eyes uh, is not something we do commonly so certainly during working hours when we have ophthalmology in the hospital 
we're able to refer to them to have a look at the back of eyes and to see whether there is eye changes because that's quite integral to both the pathway that Hagger has created and the British and Irish Hypertensive Society guidelines. Yeah, and I think for me, as I, as I mentioned last month, the take home for this guideline specifically is, is when and when not to use intravenous agents. And realistically, the patients we're only going to use intravenous agents are, are the patients who are having a dissection or in pulmonary edema, for example. Also that we're going to use nifedipine and not amlodipine. And actually, Hager has been able to go to pharmacy to make sure that we've got a good supply of nifedipine because that is what her guideline would prefer us to use. I believe it has a quicker onset of time. So whereas amlodipine takes about six hours to work, which doesn't quite work in the emergency department four-hour time target, nifedipine might work a little bit quicker. So it might be a bit better than just giving a stat dose of amlodipine like uh, you see every day of the week. At the moment. Expecting something to happen. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Hagger. Time for another Christmas joke? Okay, let's do it. Go for it. What do they sing at a snowman's birthday? I don't know. What do they sing at a snowman's birthday? For he's a jolly good fellow. (laughs) We need to slow down with this, otherwise uh, we're going to change this podcast to uh, Dad's Joke. I nearly fell off my chair there, Gareth. (laughs) Right then. Thanks for that. In this section, we want to really celebrate uh, some of the great cases that have happened this year um, and how some of the skills and expertise of our colleagues in the emergency department have really worked for the benefit of patients. We're going to start by talking about a couple of cases where ultrasound really made a difference. But it wasn't just the use of ultrasound, it was the ability to interpret the findings on those ultrasound scans and apply that to the clinical context of the patient. And we really saw some expert practice flowing through from uh, some of our specialty doctors in the EDs. Yeah, we're really lucky with some of the skills that we have in our department. Um, A few of our specialty doctors are just way above what you'd expect from them. And using their ultrasound just literally saved lives. It's fantastic. So the first case that we discussed was by one of our middle graves, Fatty, who saw a patient with a PE, uh, but he was able to do an ultrasound which showed a dilated right ventricle. I'm speaking about this as if I have the skills to be able to pick that up on an echo. And he referred to the medical team. Uh, The patient was also tachycardic and in atrial fibrillation, so that also needed to be managed. But Fatty felt really strongly that this patient would benefit from thrombolysis. And so he involved the medical and the ITU team and was able, off the basis of his ultrasound, to facilitate that. Yeah, and I think the the key message there was that uh, there was a bit of a difference in opinion why this patient was hypertensive and shocked. Fatty felt it was down to the pulmonary embolism doing that. Um, And other members of the team felt it was probably secondary to AF, for example. So there was a sort of difference in opinion how we manage it. And I think the fact that Fatty was able to do that ultrasound and demonstrate that the the right ventricle was dilated really sort of um, moved the case along to the, the appropriate treatment. Because thrombolysis is not for the faint-hearted, especially in PE. Was that a joke, pun? That was not. <laughs> it wasn't one of my Christmas cracker jokes. It should be for the jokes. faint-hearted, shouldn't it? Uh, but it, it's not for the faint-hearted. And it's a serious therapy that we use with serious complications and in actual fact the second case that was discussed which is one of our registrars Halim's where the patient was thought to clinically be a PE and the team were 
thinking that thrombolysis would be the right thing to do, he was able to do an echo and actually show and show a dissection. Yeah, so looking at the images that we had, um, the point was that he was able to demonstrate a massively dilated aortic root, which indicated that this patient may have an aortic dissection, a type A dissection. So clearly thrombolizing a dissection would have been disastrous. You've looked at those images, Lee. What is that obvious to you? I mean, I'm not massively great at echo but what do you think do you think that could be most of us could pick that up yes is the short answer gareth i think the long answer of course is that uh, you do need experience looking at these things definitely it's easy to see that dilated aortic root once you know what you're looking at but i think what we saw here were two expert practitioners with ultrasound applying those skills and they, they've actually got many many hundreds if not thousands of scans under their belt and they're used to what normal looks like and of course that then makes it easier to see what's abnormal. I think from a clinical acumen perspective then it's always important to note the important differentials isn't it in the various presentations that we see you know chest pain breathlessness we see loads of patients with those problems many of them don't have any serious um, or life-threatening problems as the cause but occasionally uh, these really serious diagnoses come along and point of care ultrasound can uh, be incredibly helpful in the right hands uh, and I definitely think it's a growth area for emergency medicine so if you're early on in your career it's definitely something to uh, start to learn about but apply it in a structured uh, and well-governed system. Absolutely agree and I, I seeing these guys in action definitely inspirational to to the whole team and and they're great guys as well. Absolutely. Time for another joke? Go for it. I think this one might be the worst of the jokes that I have. What did Santa do when he went speed dating? I don't know. What did Santa do when he went speed dating? He pulled a cracker. <laughs> Can you even that's say actually, that these days? That's actually quite good. I like that. <laughs> so now we're going to champion our junior doctors and their involvement in the cases that they see. And often they pick up some really crucial points in order to change management of the patients that they see. So the first case we discussed was um, for one of our SHOs, Ben, who saw a gentleman who'd waited a long time to be seen in our department. He was quite a young chap and he presented with headache and vomiting. And the only past medical history that he had was that he was known to have an arachnoid cyst. Yeah, so this uh, patient I actually saw, he, he, as you said, he waited about six hours to be seen overnight. And when I saw him, he was GCS 15, but he'd been having this headache for about 72 hours, about 12 hours of vomiting. He looked okay. You know, he didn't look unwell, but I did note that he'd had this arachnoid cyst in the past. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a neurosurgeon, but I've seen patients and usually arachnoid cyst is sort of, an, as we would call it, an incidentaloma. It's benign, doesn't really lead to anything, but not in this case. So what I'm really intrigued about, Gareth, um, and for, for the audience, is what is it that made you scan this patient? Yeah, so there was a few factors there. Obviously, the, the headache with the vomiting was a bit of a red flag because, yeah. you know, yes, it could be migraine, etc. But you're always taught vomiting in the context of headache potentially could be a, a you know, consequence of increased ICP. 
Can you remember what the obs were? Was there any excessive hypertension or I bradycardia? I don't think there was. Nope. Uh, there was nothing else other than the story. And, and the story for me was, yes, I've, I've got a headache, I'm vomiting, but I've also had an arachnoid cyst. My brain is not completely normal. So please CT me. Yeah, and we're, we're looking at the CT image, which I appreciate can't be seen across the podcast. And I am absolutely amazed looking at that CT image, which for the uh, audience shows a subdural hematoma with a large amount, I would say, of midline shift that he was GCS 15 and able to converse with you. And I guess this case shows a bit like we would talk about in pediatric cases, how younger people can cope with quite a lot of insult before potentially they really show that they're sick. So should we move on to the other case that we want to talk about to champion our junior doctors? Yeah, so this uh, second case, uh, again, this was another case I was involved with. Um, and I asked one of our juniors, um, Mohammed Amar, who's presented quite a few cases this year, actually. And this was um, a lady who'd come to see us with, with pain out of proportion. She had this pain in her left shoulder, which... You know, she was needing quite a lot of opiates for, but there was nothing to see clinically. But then I noticed that there was a few things cropping up that weren't very nice. So a lactate of five to start with, mm. a white cell count of 35, mm. um, just up the ante. Sounds a bit ominous, Gareth. Yeah. So I didn't know what was wrong with her, but I knew something bad was happening. Yeah, those lactate numbers, the white count and definitely the pain, they're very, very concerning, aren't they? Uh, so what did you do next, Gareth? Well, it was obvious that something bad was happening. Obviously, you think things like sepsis with the high lactate, um, but I, did, I wasn't clear where the source was coming from. Obviously, the shoulder was the, the focus of pain, but I couldn't see anything on examination. Did you think of abdominal injury or insult? Well, Just thinking about shoulder tip pain, or was it clear that it was a shoulder problem? The thought crossed my mind. It was pain out of proportion. Yep. And, and I've always been taught, if you're in the poop, so pain out of proportion, oh. then you need to think of the common things that cause you to be in the poop. Mm -hmm. And that includes things like, I don't know, an aortic dissection, necrotizing fasciitis. Have you just given us a spoiler? Ooh, maybe. Um, but anyway, this patient I felt was in the poop big style. So we decided to get a CT, chest, abdomen and pelvis, because usually that helps you a little bit. Um, now, they didn't tell us that the patient had neck fash, but there were lots of uh, features on the CT uh, which pointed towards a possible diagnosis. And coupled with the fact that the lactate was heavily rising, the patient was becoming hypotensive and tachycardic. Eventually, we led us to a diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis. Mm. Now, this patient ended up in, in ICU, as, a, as you'd imagine. And within a few hours of getting into the intensive care unit, um, some skin changes started happening. It's definitely signs of neck fashion. She went to theatre. Great. So there we go. Our junior doctors are picking up these clinical signs. They're letting us know about them so that we can help them manage these patients appropriately. Yeah, and I think in a lot of these cases, it's some nuggets from the learning. So it, certainly in, in the first case of the of the young lad with with the headache, it, it's, you know, if you've got an absolutely, if you've got an abnormal brain to start with. So, you know, if you've got something like an arachnoid cyst, then potentially there, there might be something going on. And also in this case, if, you're, if you've got pain out of proportion, so you're in the poop, then your patient's probably in the poop. Okay. I think that first case as well, you know, you need to remember with raised ICP that some of those clinical features we alluded to that we get taught about with the, the Cushing's type reflexes, they're really late signs. Yep. And uh, you mentioned children, Helen, didn't you? You know, the really young 
children, the babies that haven't got closed fontanelles, they can really compensate before they suddenly decompensate uh, when their ICP raises. And, and I guess also older adults as well that have got large ventricles, they can compensate well before they decompensate. And then just to the neck fash case, I guess there's general principles, isn't there, of managing the potentially septic patient. So I imagine that this patient got antibiotics early, some fluid resus. You know, being aware of those red flags, that lactate of five is a great big red flag, isn't it? And obviously the inflammatory markers were very high as well there. So that was up in the ante. That was telling the clinical team that there was something going on here. And, and I'm sure that that drove forward the investigation. And yeah, and I, and I definitely got something out of that. that I hadn't realised that in the early in the early stages of necrotizing fasciitis, you might not actually have any skin changes mm. to see. So, yeah, absolutely. Definitely lots of learning there. Well, well done, team. Some great cases. Let's round off with a Christmas cracker joke. I think this is my favourite so far. Go on then. Why couldn't the skeleton go to the Christmas party? He had no body to go with. Oh, no. <laughs> I think that's definitely. I think that's definitely been in a cracker I've had over the years. That one. That's a classic. That is. Right, moving swiftly on, I'm going to talk about a patient who presented to our department with a massive GI bleed. Uh, and actually, this was one of my favourite cases of the year because it really demonstrated leadership from, from one of our registrars. Yeah, I've heard it was a cracker. Gareth, do you want to tell us some more about the case? Yeah, so this was a, a 69-year-old lady presented with some hematemesis. She was initially hypertensive and her GCS was around 9. She looked okay, essentially, when she came in, but things didn't go as smoothly as you wanted it to. I think ended up in her arresting from having a massive hematemesis. Crikey. Those are the worst arrests. And Nabil showed us a few things. For example, there was a pre and post arrest blood gas. Now, looking at that VBG, I don't know you guys, you don't see that very often. No. So we were just discussing, weren't we, that pre arrest, it's a reasonably normal looking blood gas. And although she was having a bleed big enough to cause her to go into arrest, her hemoglobin is 107. And that's all about that theory of even if you're losing blood, you're not necessarily diluting your hemoglobin. And so these hemoglobins on the blood gases can sometimes be misleading as to how severe the blood loss is. But what is remarkable for me is the fact that her hemoglobin on the blood gases pre and post-arrest, um, literally dropped by about 10 grams per litre. But the rest of the blood gas is absolutely awful. So she becomes severely metabolically acidosed and her electrolytes all go completely awry. Yeah, this, this patient's blood gas tells me that something bad is definitely happening. <laughs> the, uh, the pH is 6.5. That is extreme. Yeah. But as you mentioned, a hemoglobin is only 93 on that gas. And how many times a day do you, in this context, does someone tell you, oh, well, the hemoglobin's okay, doesn't need any blood? Considering that hemorrhage is the cause of her cardiac arrest. So tell us, Gareth, what did Nabil's great leadership achieve for this patient? Well, it was clear that this patient needed quite a few things doing and needed multiple people to help him. So he needed an anaesthetist to secure the airway. He needed someone to give this patient lots of blood. And he really needed a gastroenterologist to come in and do an endoscopy and resus. Now that doesn't happen very often. And Nabil talked about how actually it was quite tricky as you'd imagine it to be to convince someone like that to come in and do an OGD in resus. I think it's a logistical nightmare because endoscopy now is done on screens and needs tech. And that tech needs to be moved either from the endoscopy unit or from emergency theatres down to the emergency department. And we need space to be able to set those things up. Have you, have you ever come across an OGD in Reese Lee? 
Yeah, I have done once or twice in this service and and elsewhere. And to be honest, we've often moved away from it and tried to get these patients up to theatre. But I I think on this occasion with this patient, there was no way that that patient could move. So it was a really challenging situation for the team. They definitely had to think on their feet. And I understand that... um, Nabil demonstrated some really good strategies for how to organise the team. And I think it's probably useful just to reflect on those, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of his slides sort of demonstrated, he talked about a three-team model. So a transfusion team, an airway team, and a resuscitation team. Yeah, I would. I mean, I would definitely advocate for that sort of thing when you've got a really complex resuscitation going on. You know, it's a team sport. You can't manage these patients on your own. You've alluded to the fact that Nabil was having to go away and talk to a specialist to try and get the definitive intervention to happen. But all the while, the patient was requiring ongoing resuscitation. And so having those different sub-teams there and present uh, will definitely have helped with that. And, you know, this was a, this was ultimately a life-saving uh, team intervention, wasn't it? So it was great, it was great work. And I think um, one of his slides sort of nails it, just the title, Make It Happen. And I think he definitely made it happen, but he had to jump through loads of hoops. And it just showed that he was able to be a massive advocate for his patient. I think this patient, nine times out of 10, would probably have died if it wasn't for this management that Nabil demonstrated. And it was nice to see in his presentation a great photograph of him and the patient with a sign saying, thank you all so much, ED team. Mm. Yeah, it definitely makes you think that, doesn't it? Yeah. And we don't get a lot of thanks because we're often the people that start of patients' journeys and it's the people that tend to be at the end that get the thanks. But there we go. Yeah. So well done, Nabil. Christmas cracker again? Time time for a Christmas cracker. This one's for my daughter. What do Santa's little helpers learn at school? I don't know. The alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> So as part of paediatric governance section of the meeting, we thought we would have a little celebration of some of the cases that we have seen this year. So I presented three cases, one of which was my own, but two others given to us by doctors in previous presentations. So the first one, I think, was a really interesting case, a case of torticollis, which we don't see commonly present to the emergency department. And certainly without knowing about this case, I probably couldn't have put my hands on a guideline to help me through it, which is... Did that give you a real pain in the neck? Did it, Looking Gareth? For one. That, boom, was boom. Ob- that was obvious, wasn't it? Oh. It was. Yeah, Thank you. So, so this presentation was about an eight-year-old female who um, approximately a week before presenting department had fallen off some climbing frame apparatus and had actually hit her neck on a metal bar on the way down. She didn't develop neck pain initially, but over the next few days developed neck pain, initially seeing her GP who reassured her. But because the symptoms persisted, which I think is key to this presentation, came to the emergency department. She had a background history of autism spectrum disorder with delayed language development, um, but was able to communicate to us that her pain was sort of moderate to severe in level. But this completely settled after analgesia. So on examination, she was holding her neck in a fixed position. And the doctor who saw her, who was Shan, one of our middle grades, could feel about a four by four centimetre swelling in the lateral wall of the neck. Otherwise, she was GCS 15, no neurology and examination was normal. So the first thing that he did was actually, I think, speak to one of my 
colleagues in PEM, which was uh, Rachel Harrison, and they decided to get a C-spine x-ray done. And although you can't see it on the podcast, uh, we're looking at it now. And the obvious change on the x-ray is the soft tissue swelling in front of cervical vertebras one to three, which is very unusual. And we would normally expect that area of soft tissue to be really slim. And so the child was referred to paediatrics and a CT um, C-spine was organized, which showed some asymmetrical thickening of the left sternocleidomastoid, which they thought was just reflective of a soft tissue injury. So she stayed on paediatrics and then, funnily enough, spiked a fever. Uh, her CRP went up. It went up to 207 with a white cell count of 28.7. And so because the clinical picture was evolving, they decided to re-CT her, but this time with contrast. And that contrast showed that she had a collection in the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which grew our good old favourite bug that has affected us a lot this year. Not group A strep. It was. I remember group A strep. I do. And when I was reviewing the slides for this case, it brought back some memory of some terrible weeks that we had in the emergency department dealing with children who everyone believed had group A strep. So it takes me back to that time. So really unusual to have found that collection and a really unusual case, but a great reminder of torticollis and how to manage it. I remember also there was, I mean, obviously necrotizing fasciitis caused by group A strep. Yeah. Um, and I remember there was a few children who'd come in with, with group A strep um, neck fasciitis as well that, that we'd picked up. Yeah, I always remember uh, torticollis as one of those uh, slightly rare uh, presentations in children and uh, there are some some pretty serious causes of that uh, so this was a great case to highlight that I think Helen in the slides you pointed out the Royal Children's Hospital guidelines from Melbourne I think that's a great resource isn't it they they do a they have an app that has loads of guidelines on it and it's a really good CPD document I find that really helpful for managing children obviously you have to accept that the guidance is Australian and there may be some local tweaks and certainly there's um, you know a growing body of guidelines in the UK isn't there we've got the peer guidelines we've got the um, healthier together guidelines uh, but for me the Royal Children's guidelines from Melbourne are probably the most comprehensive suite that have been out there for well probably a couple of decades now and there's a great little flow chart there isn't there about how to manage um, children with torticollis. Yes and essentially the decision is as to whether it's congenital and acquired um, and we discuss the other causes of acquired torticollis but as you say the guideline from Melbourne is really straightforward as to the processes that you go through and essentially that was to get a c-spine x-ray as an initial investigation and then to work through the pathway depending on what that x-ray shows so it was a great case and something that we really don't see commonly and who would have thought after an injury that it was going to be strep A abscess that was causing the problems? Yeah, so I guess the, the injury was sort of a red herring, which, which yeah. crops up quite a lot and you end up going down the wrong road. Great, so moving on, we had another fascinating paediatric case Helen. Again I picked it out because the x-ray was so great which I appreciate can't be shown on the podcast. This was a three-year-old boy who presented to the emergency department who essentially had worsening difficulty in breathing in the last 24 hours which I can tell you as winter has hit is a very common presentation. Um, he fever triggered... and wheeze, fever and wheeze. <laughs> fever and wheeze. There is so much of it isn't there, so much. He presented as septic 
but unfortunately also had chicken pox and so needed to be managed in a side room and this created a little bit of difficulty for us in managing this case in terms of trying to keep him separate from the other children who would have been vulnerable to his chicken pox whilst always also trying to manage a child that looked septic and we did end up having to move him to recess um, in order to be managed correctly he looked septic he was pale he was sweaty and it was noted that he had decreased air entry on the right hand side and that area was actually dull to percussion and so that's why I chest x-ray was was done chest x-ray showed a complete whiteout on the right hand side of the chest and again ultrasound came into play somebody got the ultrasound machine out and was able to do um, some lung windows which showed that this was fluid rather than a consolidation so we obviously gave some antibiotics keftraxin was given and some clindamycin was thrown in there as well and we referred to the sort team which is our local picu retrieval team they retrieved a rsi in the department and when they went back to southampton they put a chest drain in and the chest drain drained 700 mils of fluid i mean it's crazy i think that a child could fit that much fluid in one side of their chest um the blood gases looked pretty okay we actually did a good job of resuscitating him because his lactate went from almost three down to 1.6 and he was slightly acidotic when he arrived but wasn't by the time he left his white blood count came back at 7.2 which considering his whole chest was full of pus uh, was pretty impressive although his crp was 302 so i suspect that white cell count was just lagging behind Mm. um but it was just another excellent case and actually when we were chatting through this in the governance meeting, Greg, my newest PEM colleague, pointed out that actually children who present with chicken pox are really difficult because often we are trying to isolate them and we're trying to get them home as quickly as possible. And so when they present with either complications or medical problems alongside their chicken pox, it's really difficult to pick those up and manage them appropriately. But the team in this case did and the child had a really good outcome. I mean, it's really interesting. I've seen a few empyemas before in adults. I remember once putting a chest drain in Empire and it stunk the entire department out. So I'm glad the patient went to Southampton. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not sure that you would find many um, doctors in our hospital happy to put a chest drain in a child. Um, Although when it was a complete whiteout, I guess your confidence with hitting the correct space would have been um, would have been increased. And finally, uh, there was a case of abdominal pain, which I presented. It was a case that I saw. I can't actually remember at what point of the year it was but I was around recess uh, which is near to our streaming queue and this presented this case presented to streaming and the reason I heard the child before I saw the child was because they were screaming and my first thought was that this was going to be a Burns case because it was a really painful scream but actually when he presented mum gave a history of having been discharged from our local pediatric surgical unit that morning having had a laparoscopic fundoplication three days previously this child had cerebral palsy and although he was four years old he was actually only 12 kilos so more the size of a two-year-old and he had gastroesophageal reflux disease so they'd done the fundoplication in order to help manage that he'd had his drains out on the same day he was making a really good recovery and obviously had been discharged home looking really well and it was after dinner that evening that he suddenly developed distension of the left side of his abdomen and this acute onset of screaming. So we saw him in recess. Uh, We applied oxygen straight away. He was white. He had blue lips and you could see the distension on the left-hand side of his abdomen. The oxygen made absolutely no difference to the blueness of his lips. So it wasn't a hypoxia that was causing it. We managed to get IV access. We gave him some fluids. And as soon as I put my hand on his tummy and on his chest, I could feel surgical emphysema and it essentially covered the whole left side of his torso. And that 
that was confirmed on a chest x-ray. So we did a chest x-ray to try and work out where this air was coming from. And it was clear that it wasn't coming from his chest and therefore was coming from his abdomen. So we fast bleeped the pediatric team and the surgeons. Unfortunately, our anaesthetic colleagues were with the surgeons at the time and felt that they should also attend. Painkillers was key in this case, both obviously for the patient, but also for, I think, calming down the rest of the team because the screaming was really distracting and really distressing for everybody to hear. So although we'd originally started with morphine, the key was getting the ketamine out. And the anaesthetist used some little boluses of ketamine in order to try and control this child's pain. And it worked really effectively. And he was much more calmer, much better looking once he'd had the ketamine. We obviously discussed um, urgently with, with our paediatric surgical colleagues and they were keen to get him back to Southampton. Our PICU retrieval team were out and so we made the decision that we would transfer him ourselves and our lovely anaesthetic colleagues transferred him down to Southampton where he went back to surgery and they found that he had um, a perforation of the posterior gastric wall and that was where this air was coming from. And there's a really... I mean, I'm going to call it a lovely x-ray. I don't mean it quite like that. But an interesting x-ray showing a really good sliver of air going right down the left-hand side of the lungs and outside the rib cage, right down into the left-hand side of his abdomen, down to his pelvis. So really, the learning points from this was just acting quickly. And I think a bit like Nabil's case, just getting it done, getting the right people in the room and making the decision quickly that there was not a team in our hospital that were going to sort this child out and we needed to transfer emergently. And when that decision was made, again, just to make it happen. So to get it on and get him down to Southampton. Make it happen. Yeah. I really like the point that you brought out there, Helen, about um, controlling the environment and it's almost a basic humanitarian thing, isn't it? He had a patient there in a lot of pain and there was a lot of distress happening from that, but that distress was sort of radiating across to the, the clinicians looking after the child and actually getting some proper analgesia that was quick in onset into the child just helped to help to manage them, but it also helped to manage the rest of the team, which I think then helped things to happen. Didn't Definitely. It? We worked much more cohesively once the stress within the environment had lessened slightly. Yeah, and I think ketamine absolutely fantastic drugs especially in children and we, we often don't think of it as analgesia but absolutely fantastic analgesia it's brilliant time for a christmas joke to wrap up this little section absolutely i mean i'm i'm running out of them now i'm gonna go with what happened to the man that stole an advent calendar i don't know what happened to the man who stole an advent calendar he got 25 days <laughs> wow <laughs> Well, I'd just like to take this moment to congratulate us because we made a podcast. We made a podcast. I think, Gareth, you should give yourself a bit more credit. I think you made the podcast. Lee has been a great contributor and then I've sort of come in halfway through. Well, I don't know. I always wanted to do it and I think I've been given the opportunity and I'm just happy that we've just done it. As Nabil said, just make it happen. And actually, it's not going so bad. No, you've done you've done a great job. It's lovely to spend the time with both of you here. And you know, you're downplaying things, Gareth, but we know that you spend many hours after each recording here. Listening to your voice. Listening to our dulcet tones. Cutting out the erms um, and uh, the ahs. Uh, and it takes a long time, doesn't it, to edit all of these. So, you know, on behalf of everybody who's been listening, we'd just like to say thank you, Gareth. For yeah, doing thanks, that. Gareth. No problem. And as somebody who used to have to produce a newsletter and try and do other ways of sharing information around the department, knowing that those are thankless tasks, I think actually the podcast was definitely moving forward and trying to engage people in the way that they want to listen to information and listening to 
a podcast for half an hour in the car or whilst eating your lunch engages many more people than trying to produce a newsletter to be read that just ends up getting left on a desk somewhere. And also, I can tell you that over the last three episodes, uh, we've actually had 143 downloads uh, across the episodes. That might have been my family. <laughs> um, but that's, that was averaging two downloads a day from the Helen Bates family. <laughs> 14 per week and 14 per month so not bad i think that's that's absolutely astounding like who would have thought that you would be able to reach out to that many people so well done and i think that's probably factored into the fact that uh, the podcast is now available on spotify and apple podcasts and i think it's also a testament to the fact that lee and i have come back to do this with you because it takes a little bit of time and planning we gesticulate to each other quite a lot there's some pauses and some sort of panicked faces as somebody throws a question to someone that they weren't expecting uh but i think certainly i feel more comfortable doing this second time round and it'll get easier as we go along yeah well done everyone Well, that's episode four all wrapped up. Fantastic content there. Really great learning. Really great chat. So on behalf of all of us at ED GovCast, I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you all in 2024.